Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success, and we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing games, marketing, and technology ecosystem. My name is Xander Agosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host... Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest... Ismail Mai, again, CEO, co-founder of Big Wolf. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Ismail. Very excited to have you here. We've got Excited quite a bit to cover today. <laughs> uh, quite a bit to cover today, so we'll try and jump right in. A um, bunch of news, some announcements, and then quite an in-depth interview. So we'll just get started. Warren, do you want to do some announcements at the top? Yeah, so uh, we, we did want to announce a couple things going on. So uh, next week, we're going to be doing a webinar uh, on July 20th. Uh, this is hosted by Singular, and it's going to be with uh, folks from The Sandbox, Mythical Games, and Advertiser. And uh, it's intended as kind of like a high-level in, high intro to Web3 game development, um, you know, what's, what's kind of smoke, what's important about it. Uh, so that should be quite interesting, free event, of course. Um, and then also for anyone who is listening to this podcast on the day it is released, um, this Thursday night, July 14th, uh, I'm going to be part of a Twitter space on a fun topic, which is why gamers hate NFTs. So that's going to be hosted on the uh, Neo Tokyo uh, uh, Twitter, Twitter space, um, and it's going to be at 11 p.m. EST. There'll be a recording that we'll post afterwards as well. Awesome. Our first section is industry insights, where we do a deep dive in industry news. Uh, we were worried that there would be a little, uh, not very much news to cover this morning. And then we got the mother of all news fairies dropping off the, a really, really big and important piece of news. Yeah. Holy uh, moly. This is a wild one. So uh, right. let me do a brief summary. I'm going to be reading from a Business Wire article, uh, Business Wire article entitled Unity Announces Merger Agreement with Iron Source. Here's a quote. Yeah. Highly accretive merger is expected to deliver a run rate of 1 billion in adjusted EBITDA by the end of 2024 and 300 million in EBITDA synergies by the end of the year. The all stock deal values iron source at approximately 4.4 billion, representing a 75% premium to the 30 day average exchange ratio. The Unity uh, board authorizes a share buyback program of up to 2.5 billion, effective upon the closing of the transaction. And then another kind of key piece of this is one of their two of their major investors are putting another billion dollars of convertible yeah. notes into the company. Yeah. So this is on the back of the three to 400 employee layoff that we covered last week on the podcast and sort of just piggybacking on the conversation that we had last week. I think I talked last week about the concept that there's going to be some super winners in the mobile ad tech and gaming space. And I called out specifically Unity in Apple event as examples of the super winners. And I think, you know, I had sort of left Iron Source off that list. And I think the, the, the core reason for that is that they were a, so they're solely at a mediation platform and an ad network, which is really a critical component of it, but it isn't really enough of a consolidation of the different components of the value chain to learn, to lead to a long-term breakout winner. And now with the, Correct. you know, joining Iron Source into the Unity, uh, Unity family, this changes. And so now I look at Apple Event and Unity as basically the far and ahead clear winners of the space in terms of where I see the companies that are going to win the mobile gaming and app marketing space for the foreseeable future. Uh, lots to unpack there, but guys, what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's me, let's go to you here first. I mean, I, you, and you've been doing, you've been in the mobile dev space for some time. I'm sure like longstanding relationships with both uh, Unity and App Levin. Like, what does this mean like from a developer standpoint? Yeah, look, I think in our space, you know, consolidation is a very common thing that we see. And I think we will, and I think especially in this current market conditions that we're seeing, um, it makes sense for some people to strategically uh, protect the future outlook of their companies by pursuing uh, some of these like uh, mergers and uh, consolidated plays. So as far as what I think, I think, I mean, look, they're both strong products. Uh, we've used Iron Source. Um, to monetize um, and to acquire users in a couple of our partnership games over the years. Um, Unity Ads um, wasn't kind of a big part of the stack up until a few years ago, and that started to become increasingly uh, a bigger uh, piece of our like marketing stack, if you will, both on the monetization side and acquisition side. So I think synergistically, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, those are my those are my early thoughts. I'm I'm definitely surprised because I thought that you know I I could I could have seen a future in which Iron Source kept trying to 
I don't know, figure out other uh, adjacent opportunities to pursue, um, whether it was related to Web3, whether it's related to, um, I, don't, I don't know what else, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, taking the app love and playbook and saying, hey, let's actually launch a, a, a studio too. And like, let's aggressively like figure out that play. Like, I'm not sure. But so from that perspective, I was a little bit shocked, but at the same time, just the market conditions made me say, ah, I can see why they did this. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. More in your thoughts? I'm, yeah, I'm I mean, for, this is to me like one of the most interesting deals of the last year. I mean, Unity's secret sauce from an ad side for me has always been, I mean, they, they've always, from, from my perspective, really under-resourced um, their ads unit as a business, but it kind of didn't matter because they had this unfair advantage of you know, so much of the mobile um, gaming ecosystem is developed on Unity's engine. And, you know, yep. yeah. And so, you know, what that, that means is like these games have the ability to essentially serve Unity ads uh, by default. Um, and, and Ismail, please correct me if, if, on, if any of this sounds, sounds incorrect, but like essentially like a game built on Unity SDK can, it's pretty, there's no additional integration needed to serve uh, Unity checkbox. ads. Click. Right, basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it's one of those situations where what you, it's, it's smart. To your point, Unity is like the tool of choice for most uh, mobile mm -hmm. gaming uh, uh, studios, and Unity Ads was just an obvious value proposition to to offer to these people to say, hey, you need to make money, and all those other ad networks they're complicated. Just use Unity Ads. Right. You trust us to build your games. And it's actually interesting. I think when I, I reviewed some of the public documents, I want to say it was last year, so I haven't looked at it recently. Um, Unity ads was a pretty significant amount of the revenue. Like it's I mean, most the of it. engine, it's like 60 it most or something. It. Yeah, exactly. So like the, uh, um, the engine was almost like, almost feels like a loss leader um, to just bring people into the ecosystem, if you will. Um, so yes, yeah, so yeah. sorry, Warren. I mean, what you were saying is, is correct so far. I've yeah, always thought so of the the the, the tool the engine is a lot, not quite a loss eater, but it's like a, I think of it as Adobe like twenty years ago, right? So it's like they they've under monetized the engine, but what's going to happen is they've trained a whole generation of game developers to work only on the Unity, and so now right, right. as they ratchet up the cost over time, that's like a segment right. of the business which is just going to keep growing. Right. And right now they're subsidizing that with the ads product. Anyway, right. what were we saying? Yes, yeah. So I mean, so the opportunity here is like you know, it's been so easy to use Unity ads by default, but from an ad monetization perspective for developers, that's kind of like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Like if you don't actually have a mediation provider to have multiple um, right. ad providers bidding against each other, you're really leaving money on the table. Right. So if this Correct. pans out how it could, it essentially could mean any mobile game built on Unity by default has Iron Source slash Unity mediation. And it is, um, you know, I'm not a dev myself, but like my understanding is it's just essentially like nightmarish to have to switch your mediation provider. Right. So if, if, if these games are shipping essentially with an embedded mediation provider, that is a huge unfair advantage for iron source. And I have to assume like, this is very, uh, uh, very scary for, for app Levin, which is, um, I think the only serious competitor left in the, the mediation space. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, I mean, you're touching on something that's like, <laughs> a bit, very relevant to some conversations I've been having recently with some of our investors and um, mm. some of which have very close relationships with Applevin and some of which are um, on the iron source side. And, you know, it's, there's like a big divide sentiments wise sometimes uh, between both of them. Um, one, one thing that's worth saying is <laughs> you're correct. They're the only ones worth talking about, but there are a lot, you right. know, a lot of other ad providers <laughs> technically come with uh, mediation. I think even Google theoretically can mediate, but like nobody's ever, gonna use at least uh, mobile app uh, developers we don't take them seriously it's literally uh, uh, app levens max or iron source um and then sometimes honestly some developers they're not sh they they flip-flop they'll try one one month they try one the right. other and it is a very painful thing to try to mm -hmm. switch and right. um and i could say some, some controversial things about what i've been right. told about like uh <laughs> which product is better but what i will say is on the iron source side yes they are definitely um respected enough that like it makes unity kind of become a scary uh competitor to app Levin for sure from a mediation right. perspective but app Levin doesn't i think the app Levin folks wouldn't agree with me I, yeah. I think they would tell you that like it definitely would not <laughs> yeah yeah our, our product is just superior it was created from day one to kind of do mediation much better and for xyz reasons um you know yeah 
We'll, well so here, if you, want to see the, if you want to see the controversial stuff, I'm happy to. So I ran the rewarded video <laughs> bucket of traffic for uh, uptick for years and year, for several years, basically since the beginning mm-hmm. of our business up until, I don't know, a year ago or so. And what I found after testing this, both products extensively across a number of games was that the Iron Source ROAS uh, targeter was like by far, or sorry, not the, the Apple and ROAS targeting tool was by far the highest, the most effective tool for ROAS marketing on the SDK network. Um, Iron Source from, from a UA perspective, right? From a UA Versus, perspective, yeah. as as a, someone who's buying media, using the Iron Source ROAS tool was like by far the best SDK rewarded video network. However, Iron Source was catching up to Apple Oven, and I think the critical component is a lot of people don't trust Apple Oven because of how shady they've been across yeah. different segments of the business, yeah. and the fact that they're developing yep. direct competitors to you is, is yeah. a very reasonable reason not to use their tooling, even though it may be the most effective. And so that's sort of the tension that I've witnessed is like Apple's tools are incredible, but you're basically feeding your enemy with the data that they can use to shoot you with if you use their tool. And so that's been what my experience has been. And I've been out of it for about nine months or so in terms of really, really hands-on with this specific segment of it. But that's what I had always noticed in the past. So so slight devil's advocate here, Xander, since you hung up your UA jersey you know, a few, few months back, um, we definitely see like, uh, like Iron Source's own, from UA perspective, their bidder has gotten a lot better, and it's been sort of like a back and forth war, both in what we've seen from our partners ad monetization, and from like from a UA perspective, which channel has more powerful optimization algorithms. So it's just like a war between those two titans of of, of Iron Source and App Levin, where we'll see month month over month, like one or the other have having an edge. Right. Right, 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 right. Well, and there's one other very important thing here, which is they have levers in the background to decide how much money you get because they're doing sure. ROAS bidding. And so right. if you have a good relationship with someone or they're trying to get you onto their mediation exactly. platform, they'll give you advantageous uh, traffic exactly. and then they'll watch exactly. it, switch it back and forth. And so anyway, this is it, I think it's good for the ecosystem. I think it's good for Unity shareholders specifically. Very good for Iron, Iron Source shareholders, up 50% this morning, um, but exciting to watch. Uh, any, any other thoughts here before we move on? Wait, one other thing I want to call out you that I think Iron Source really uh, brings to the table is um, Unity has historically been, to be blunt, like really subpar from um, an account management and sales perspective, good point. And BD perspective. And it's not that they've had great people. And um, yeah. uh, we, you know, I've in the past hired great people from Unity. It's just simply under resource compared right. to um, the the resources for, for account management and BD and sales at Iron Source and Apple Levin. And so I think um, Iron Source and uh, credit to our friend James from Bubble Eye, he brought up this 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 point when we were chatting about this this morning. Um, I think like Iron Source brings a lot of sales, BD, account management sure. and account growth expertise to the table that really will help Unity. And- wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree. Is there anything? Yeah. Not, yeah. No other thoughts that they're on there. I mean, yeah. I think we could do a whole episode on this, but we have a exactly. lot more yeah. to talk about. So let's, let's yeah, so let's 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 dig into the next one. So um, this one kind of snuck up on me. Uh, this is we, we want to talk about GameStop launching their NFT marketplace. So um, we're going to link a couple articles relative. To, well, we're going to link to the actual marketplace and then um, uh, an, an analysis article as well from from Ars Technica. So uh, I'm hearing different numbers around this. Um, you know, I've been was reading some stuff on Twitter that said that uh, in the first 24 hours, GameStop actually grossly outpaced uh, OpenSea for sales volume. But then in this this article that we're linking, it's it's saying that like GameStop NFT was firmly firmly number two. But um, either way, in the first 24 hours, there's estimated about be about a million dollars of sales volume which might sound fairly impressive, but when you think about the model for NFT marketplaces, it's usually just a couple percentage that the marketplace right. is taking. It's, you're not buying direct from, you know, it's, it's an eBay model. It's not um, that you're buying these directly from, from, iron, from iron source, from, <laughs> from GameStop and they're netting the <laughs> revenue. So what that means practically in this, in this launch day, they only netted $45,000 in revenue estimated. Um, which is pretty, pretty paltry, but um, we're also in the depths of the bear market. Uh, the, uh, yep, yep. Um, Ismail, is there something you wanted to chime in here? No, yeah, I'm curious. Do we have numbers about what the daily, because um, op- I mean, t- t- OpenSea's daily uh, trading volume would feels to me like it would be significantly more than that. What is that uh, comparison metric that you just used? To- yeah, that's in the um, in the article linking. It says that um, OpenSea had uh, a little over 100 million in volume in the same the same period. So I saw like early early comments on Twitter gotcha. about GameStop outpacing, but it's it seems like that it's it, likely that was bad bad information. 
Gotcha. So, gotcha. so digging a, a little bit. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and smell. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, digging a little bit just into like what this marketplace is. So, I think what's interesting about it is, is sort of like how uninteresting it is at launch. Like it's essentially just another basic marketplace. Like they have some unique projects launching on there. But there's nothing gaming related. They they have they basically said we're not supporting any gaming related assets at launch, um, and like that that will come in time. And it, to me, this seems like a huge oversight. Um, like you're not gonna you're not gonna replace OpenSea in my opinion with just a a, a copy of OpenSea. When I think about opportunities, <laughs> exactly. like a company, yeah, a company I'm watching a lot is uh, Fractal, which is Justin Kahn from Twitch's new company, and they really are focusing on a gaming-focused uh, NFT marketplace and Launchpad ecosystem. And that that to me is a wide open lane because um, OpenSea has some policies that are really bad for gaming. Like right now, you can't sell an item for less than five dollars on OpenSea. And we all come from the world of mobile micro microtransactions, and I think a lot of that's going to port over to Web three. So like just that simple policy prevents you from being able to sell trade like a 99 cent item that would be, you know, the, a sustainable price point for a lot of in-game items. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a interesting development, but I don't see much that, that shows me that this is like a super innovative approach. You guys would love your thoughts on, on the launch. Yeah. Based on what I see, I'm not seeing anything that's, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm not seeing anything that's differentiating, game changing, that's, all that interesting just seems like another marketplace that might I, I don't even know if <laughs> if i would like if i had my nfts um uh, ready to go and sell like if this would be a place that i'd invest uh, that much time unless it was like an incremental effort to do so i'd focus on open sea and rarebles and fractals and magic eden and all the others before i probably gave this a look but i don't know early days you know we'll see where where it goes uh, but yeah, I'm uh, un, not not too impressed, um, and it almost feels like they maybe. I'm sure they've been working on this for a long time, and yeah. you know, uh, felt as though you know what bear market or not, we should just like get it out there. And look, there's a lot of innovation that's to be done in the bear market. To be frank, and um, we're a case <laughs> a study in, in in that, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, I don't know. This feels feels weirdly timed <laughs> and weirdly executed. I don't know. Dad, are you muted? I saw it. Yep. Um, definitely the timing isn't great for them. I, I think I'm willing to take the other side of this bet and, and here, sort of here's why. Um, they've been slowly building up their tool set for Web3 uh, technology. So there is, I think several months ago, they launched the GameStop wallet. Um, which is sort of the first layer of, you know, how, how you have to get into the Web3 space. Now they're launching the GameStop marketplace and uh, we'll see what comes next. And I expect there to be more that comes down the line. Um, there's a few things they have going for them. I mean, it's one of the most engaged and well-known brands in gaming that exists bar none. Um, and what they are doing, I think, is likely opening up uh, the NFT marketplace to net new users who are not current Web3 natives. And I think that's what good for GameStop. I think that's good for the Web3 ecosystem. Um, the other thing to think about is this is not a technology, this is traditionally not been a technology company. They've been a brick and mortar retailer and they've spun up a engineering operation in, I don't know the exact timeline. I'm guessing no, I mean, NFTs weren't a thing really in, in the cultural zeitgeist more than like 18 months ago on the mainstream. And so I really think that this is probably something that they've spun up very, very quickly. And the other thing is due to their stock, and how how like how high it's priced right now, and the fervor and zealotry of their uh, investors, like they have a long runway and the ability to continue to raise money and invest in these products over a long timeline that I think is going to dwarf the, most of their competitors' ability to compete over the long term. And so it's early days, and like yeah, they didn't get it right off the bat. They're not Web three native. They're not doing what Fractal is doing, but they're going to be watching what Fractal is doing, and they'll implement it into their system over long over long period of time. And so all I'd say is like, I think it's a little too early to write them off. Well, I don't, to be clear, I don't think this is an impressive launch. It's not particularly interesting. It really isn't. But I think over the long term, there may be a huge opportunity for this business as they continue to, if they, if, and as they continue to invest into the system, uh, there may be a, a path to growth over a long period of time, which makes them potentially a really scary competitor in the Web3 space. So, um, so, so with the, your comments in mind, Xander, I think this is the big question. Will this business unit survive long enough to be relevant because yeah. cultural sentiment in the gaming community now is i don't think it's ever been worse since sort of the advent of nfts against nfts just the you know every news story right now is negative or highlighting 
and sort of exploit or or scam. And like I've never seen worse overall sentiment from gaming culture for NFTs. I personally believe that's very temporary and it's mostly driven by the loud voices of certain bad actors. But the question is, will GameStop support this business unit for the potentially years it's going to take before the the gaming community is having like more productive, open-minded engagement with with Web3 ecosystems? Good question. Um, I think they should. I think that this is like they have, if they do, I think they have a real opportunity here, Um, but that doesn't mean they will. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we have one more story this week, uh, also on the Web3 front and tying into uh, another recent story. So uh, I think it was two weeks ago, we covered the launch of the Solana phone. Um, And uh, since the last podcast, we had the announcement from Polygon, uh, and we're linking an article here. Um, Nothing phone comes with with a Web3 twist thanks to Polygon partnership. So uh, Polygon is partnering with phone manufacturer Nothing to integrate its Web3 technology. Polygon announced a partnership revealing that it is bringing its tech to the Nothing phone. Um, Polygon's VP of growth said that their initial plan is to provide the Android-based smartphone with quick access to Polygon platform apps and games and Polygon ID, a user identity solution using zero knowledge proofs. In addition to apps and games on the Polygon platform, Nothing Phone users will be able to access the network's payment and future features such as proof-based ID solutions, Polygon ID, et cetera. Polygon revealed that the end goal is to make all Nothing Phone products and other ecosystem devices future ready by backing sustainable and secure access to Web3 apps. Okay, so this is hot on the heels of the Solana phone announcement. I think that the one thing I really want to call out is this is a very different model. So whereas like Solana is trying to actually develop a phone, this is a software-based partnership. The you know the company actually building the phone is is nothing. Um, it's and I, nothing really wasn't on my radar before, so I did a, did a little research before the podcast. This is really just launching focused on the India market. I don't know their plans to expand um, outside of that. I'm guessing it will be based on that launch. Um, and this was also like a largely crowdfunded phone. So another aspect of this is there's going to be these, they're called like black, black dot NFTs, and they're going to the community that crowdfunded the, the development of the phone. It's supposed to give them like early access to future you know, features um, and other, other kind of vague benefits. So this is interesting. I think it's, it's important to call out that there's more movement in the Web3 phone space. I, my, my main takeaway is personally is like, I'm cautiously bullish on the concept of Web3 native phones. We really need them because um, the, the, the decentralized app experience on mobile is really bad right now, but I am not necessarily confident in specifically the playbooks of Polygon and nothing or of Solana here to just sort of like have the resourcing and, and expertise to actually bring these to market and, and gain adoption. Uh, guys, would love your thoughts on, on this. Um, so like you, I had not really heard about uh, nothing, uh, honestly, up until I came across that article. Uh, I am also cautiously optimistic because I feel as though, um, so Big Wolf, for example, our whole, uh, our thesis is, you know, mobile first. Um, we operate at the intersection of original IP, licensed IP, and NFTs. So it's in our best interest <laughs> to make sure that the mobile experience um, kind of feels, you know, top notch over time. And as you said, right now it's not, and it's not because of the oligopolies in place um, and them just kind of protecting their current interests and not supporting these uh, Web three native kind of experiences. So. I'm rooting for them to win. <laughs> I'm rooting for either them or Solana, just you know, out of uh, I don't say selfish interest, but just because like I would love for it to be seem for there to be a place, a device that just you're able to you know um, start it up, you're able to connect your MetaMask, connect your Polygon uh, native wallet, whatever, your Solana wallet, and um, I think the Phantom is the Solana wallet that has like a lot of traction. Get Phantom going and just do what you do the same way that you do in a, in a free-to-play games. You can just like make an in-app purchase, pay your gas fees, and just get back to business and not have it be this like really weird thing where you have to go to your browser and right. scan QR codes and do all this. Uh, it's it's miserable kinda, right now. Yeah. Miserable hoop jumping that has to happen. So, um, but, but again, you know, I get scared when I see these companies trying to do stuff like this because like a company like Amazon that does have all the resources in the world um, 
you know, flopped uh, when it had its kind of hardware aspirations with the Fire Phone back in the day. But maybe times have changed, um, and maybe you know, a lot of people have learned from some of those mistakes. And don't forget Facebook. Facebook tried to make a phone too. <laughs> Facebook too, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, those are those are kind of like my early thoughts on this. I mean, maybe maybe the win out of these. Um, these phone launches is not necessarily about them in particular, but but maybe it's about moving the Overton window yes. of just providing a playbook for like how we support Web3 on mobile, how uh, platforms can monetize Web3 apps that have non-traditional uh, models versus traditional in-app purchase. But that could be a positive outcome with this as well. My, my hope is that they uh, get big enough to be scary. And that is would be really good because it would mean that it would accelerate the adoption of Web3 friendly policies by Google and Apple. And we'll see. I'm a little skeptical that that will happen because the traction, it, ha it has to be incredibly compelling. And the only people asking for these is a, a small minority of Web3 super users. And it, we have to get, you have to get a sort of critical mass for this to be relevant. So we'll see. Uh, let's hope so. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm hoping that gaming is the application that kind of can drive that just because I think we all know here that, you know, gaming is, people will maybe argue with this, but the numbers don't, is the most important form factor when it comes to games, right? It's, um, I think, the most lucrative right now. I think it represents almost 50% of all revenue generated. And so, I mean, I think if we're able to find the, the games or the game that is able to, that people are willing to acquire these devices because that's the only way to really have the optimal mobile experience and that starts to you know again um help with the open to window concept like yeah i don't know i mean I'm, I'm excited to see what happens and what kind of dent they can leave yeah with the aspirations cool well that was quite a bit of news to cover i'd like to take a moment to pivot to our main section where we'll talk about some of the eras of gaming and what's changed over time with our guest Ismail. So Ismail, we just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, what Big Wolf is and sort of what is your core responsibilities and what you guys, what you do there? Yeah, so Ismail Mayagan, um, I'm the CEO and uh, co-founder of Big Wolf. So we, the way we like to describe ourselves is we're a mobile first gaming studio and platform company uh, operating at the intersection of original IP, licensed IP and NFTs. So what does that mean? It means we just, we make mobile first products, um, not just necessarily games. Uh, we think about mobile first comics as something that's interesting. Um, and we typically like to do them with an aspect of Web3 NFTs or uh, IP incorporated in them. Um, as far as what I do for the company, I do everything from fundraise to business development. I'm an engineer myself. I don't code um, these days just because there's just too much work to do for the company. Um, we're about 35 people. Um, most of those are in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, we have a handful of folks in the Bay Area. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's me in a nutshell and Big Wolf. So, so Ismail, I know, um, it, I believe uh, Big Wolf has been around for a little over eight years now. Is that correct? Yeah, we've been around for some time. Um, in our previous incarnation, we were a pseudo partner. We were a partner studio. We were, we almost had this work for hire model where we would partner with some established studios to help them bring their games to the market. Uh, I'm a third, I'm what you call a third culture kid. I grew up all over mm -hmm. the world. So, um, that what that gave me is a, a network, a global network um, that was quite differentiated from most people's, um, you know, especially when we started the company. And what I did is I leveraged that network to build um, cost efficient engineering centers that allowed me to approach a, a more established gaming studio and say, hey, look, you're spending, you know, $10 million bringing these titles to life and they may fail. As a matter of fact, most games will fail. Um, have more shots at bat, like pay significantly yep. less and let's partner on the upside. Um, so we did that for some time and it was working, it was working well, but we started to say to ourselves after we helped a few uh, titles do really well, um, we started to think to ourselves like, hey, like why not be like a, our own fully like vertically integrated publisher and developer? Yes. Um, we started to feel like we could, the competencies that some of our partners were providing to us didn't feel like rocket science <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, and we could see uh, a pathway for us to do those things ourselves. And so that's what we, that's what we did. Um, so, so being that you guys have, you know, survived and thrived over such a, you know, a long, I mean, that's such a broad 
period, like essentially like a large portion of, of mobile gaming's relevancy as an ecosystem. Yep. Wondering if you can um, identify, I mean, you already touched on one earlier today, which is like the advent of Web3 technology, but but what have you seen from your your perspective as a CEO of the game company as the main sort of like pivots and evolutions or like eras of, of mobile games as, as a segment? Is are there, are there are there any other like big landmarks and step changes that, that you've seen as a founder that are important to kind of plant a flag? Yeah, um, there's there are a few. There are some that has to do with say on the company building side uh, as it relates to mm -hmm. um, how investors perceive a gaming company, um, their willingness to even invest. You know, when I started the company, if you didn't work at Riot, if you weren't like an executive at EA for a long time or whatever, like you're not raising any money from anybody, <laughs> at least not from institutionals, right? right? right. Um, and that started to change. And honestly, that feels like that has accelerated dramatically even just in the last three years, three to four years. You're starting to see like some gaming focus funds, some that will straight up say, hey, we invest in content and studios, which is just like, it, it, it's kind of, it still makes me laugh because it was just such a funny world five, six years ago, that would not be the case, but you're seeing a lot more of that. And you've seen a lot of people um, also still continue to invest in infrastructure. Infrastructure was always the thing that most uh, institutional investors would invest in. They'll be like, hey, look, we get that gaming is big, it's a big deal, but we wanna uh, invest in the picks and shovels as they say, uh, not in like trying to find like the gold nuggets. So now you're seeing people take a multi-pronged approach. And, and, and honestly, in some cases you're actually seeing it in many say, hey, actually we think the nuggets is where you're going to become a transformational company, not in creating a, um, not in creating just infrastructure, which has also been fascinating. When I first started um, getting into mobile games, I mean, my story is there was a guy I knew who was spamming the app store, and he was generating a, <laughs> a, a pretty significant amount of money doing so. I didn't like the spam component, um, but I love the premise of the ability to create these uh, applications. And, and it wasn't just games, he was doing things across um, categories, but the ability to create these products that um, I could see how people were engaging with them, not, um, I wouldn't have to kind of send them a survey later on. We could just be sitting in a room together and I could just see firsthand how they interacted with it. Um, it was really amazing. And so I, yeah, spent a lot of time kind of trying to explore the space, trying to see how much, um, smoke was being kind of communicated if any turned out that there wasn't any smoke and turned out we were kind of in the midst of a macroeconomic um, even let's say change or world change where as i dug into the numbers like i realized just how massive <laughs> focusing on mobile and mobile games could be i mean like you know last year something like 72 percent of all app spend is in yeah. mobile games and so i said to myself it made sense to follow those tailwinds and uh yeah, so from a kind of era perspective, there was kind of, you had the, the, you had like some of these spammers, you had some of this, like the Wild West days, right? And a lot of those got like cleaned out through enforcement of, of policies, just uh, people, you know, uh, explore, trying to exploit like ASO loopholes that always like kind of kept uh, uh, getting removed. And then you got a you you got into this moment of like more let's say quality games, but now the problem is, it became harder for quality games to just stand out organically. So you would have the occasional Flappy Bird come out and you know do well and become like a part of the cultural zeitgeist, but it started to become increasingly hard for a game to just expect to do well based on quality alone. So you had to start right. to invest in user acquisition and user acquisition is not cheap. And so I think that started to lead into this world where like the best gaming, and I don't say the best gaming studios, but more and more uh, studios started to realize that they needed capital um, to invest in marketing and that like, potentially most of their marketing may even, most of their capital may go into marketing. Um, right. and, and so, yeah, those are kind of some distinct phases or like periods and points that I think I've noticed over my time in space. Um, there's also uh, related to the funding side of things, the concept of how companies are even valued and what was a seed round and now this introduction of uh, a thing called like a pre-seed and yeah, I can go, I can go like super in depth, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for now. <laughs> well, uh, there's one thing, oh, good one. Yeah, I was gonna say, Ismail, like during that time period, do you think that there was, as you're describing you know, moving through these areas, like 
Another thing I'm thinking about is like, is there a flashpoint uh, that you think about around mainstream acceptance of free to play as a business model? Because, you, you know, like in the early days, there was so much hate for free to play and like the top games weren't weren't free to play initially. And then it, it's it's the idea of like premium games on on mobile now is, is almost non-existent. Like it's it's a trivial amount of all of the revenue in the mobile space. So like from your perspective, did you see a specific change where it's like, okay, now there's mainstream adoption for this or was it kind of coming in, in inches over time? Oh, you know, I remember very clearly. I mean, there used to be a time where we would launch, you know, sometimes two versions of the game, right? <laughs> sometimes you'd call it the HD um, and then sometimes you wouldn't call it HD. Like there were different ways you, there were different strategies you'd pursue, but you'd sometimes launch two versions. One that was the premium that you paid up front and then one that was the free to play. And that, what started to happen is the free version, quote unquote, started to, I mean, almost always generated more than the premium version, right? And it makes sense for, for those that are in the space. Um, you give somebody an opportunity to engage with your product and see if they like it. And if they do, you know, maybe they watch an ad um, and they keep watching ads and maybe they never even spend money and that's okay because you're able to monetize off the ad. Um, but then some start to, you know, get into it and maybe they spend a buck here, two, three, and before you know it, you have a customer that has a concept of a lifetime uh, lifetime value associated with them. Uh, I want to say, you know, I'm kind of, going off of memory here, but I feel like I, I noticed that distinct change in the in the uh, in the consumers kind of accepting free to play as a model five ish years ago where it just look the thing with gamers are loud. I think even with NFTs yeah. right now you hear like oh NFTs are bad this and this a uh, ghost recon like just so loud and they're so, um, and so sometimes it's easy for you to take those loud people um, as representing everybody when right. the reality is like, sometimes a couple of things that happen. Some of those people, I mean, will naturally just age out or some of the products that are being made because the demographic of who is now a gamer has changed dramatically such that maybe those types of gamers, your core gamers who will never like NFTs, who will go to their graves, um, you know, denigrating NFTs, maybe that's okay. But for the newer age of folks, you know, maybe your our, our grandma who's playing Candy Crush, she's a gamer too, whether those right. core gamers like it or not, right? And if you craft experiences that work for her and allow her to get in the game if you will then like it, it just it just makes a lot of sense you bring up a great point ismail which is um so much of the advent of free to play uh i'm paraphrasing a little bit here but it was it seems like part of what you're saying is it was less about convincing existing core gamers to adopt a new model uh, more about mobile expanding free to, mobile free to play expanding the market bringing in thank you like, People exactly. that, that grew exactly. up with this exactly. as a default model or people that were never gamers before and still don't call themselves gamers, but are playing these games, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that I think you were sort of referencing earlier, and I think is an interesting piece to slide in here is you talked about how um, at a certain point it became more difficult for a good, good quality game by itself to break out. And let's... Yep. I'm, I'm curious, you've done a lot of work with IPs, and I'm curious how mm -hmm. people started leveraging IPs as sort of a UA lever or as a way of making their brand step, their game stand out from the pack. Is that something that you can speak to a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So uh, something we noticed uh, a few years ago where, you know, the number of IP games in the top grossing charts was like non was pretty was significant right and and it, again some of this is just common sense it makes sense somebody if you see the simpsons and it's a it's a product that you like or it's a brand or ip that you know you have a vested interest in whether because of nostalgic reasons or whatever you're most likely going to give it a shot and so we took that concept and said hey what if we could could rely on ip or could incorporating IP in our titles help us with lowering user acquisition costs? Because now when people do see our ads or see our product, they're more willing to engage with it, right? And can it also lead to higher engagement once they do download it? Can it lead to higher retentions once they are playing with it and they, you know, again, they want to stick around longer? And can it even lead them to want to spend more? Because there's almost this like trust that we get to inherit by virtue of leveraging that IP. Right. And turns out all those things play out, but you have to be very careful with IP because while it can play out, there still needs to be um, the, the the genre or the game mechanic that you implement for that IP has to be coherent. Right. Like you can't like, 
do Narcos and Match 3 or something. Like that doesn't make any sense, you know? So you have to understand what the audience is playing, uh, what the, who your audience and your demographic is and what kinds of games they like. Do that match. And once you do that match, you're still not guaranteed to like, you know, do really well, but you're probably going to have an interesting product out the gate as long as it passes uh, not say the minimum bar, but it passes a certain bar, you'll probably do decently well. And then like with all games, then you just got to optimize and optimize and get the balance and all of that stuff, right? And most likely you'll come out with something that, that, that works. Now, working with IP is also another, let's say, business risk though. So while it increases your potential for success, it is a business risk because of just the way some of these deals get structured. Um, so sometimes it can be a financial burden to you, or sometimes even though you are more successful, you have to share more with a partner and that can like really severely impact the potential and how much you're able to, you know, invest in scaling your game. So it's not like a free lunch uh, situation, right. but, and, and a lot of times it can, it can do wonders for your products. Yeah. You bring up a really good point about the structure of, of these deals and Ismail, you've probably seen a lot more of these than, than I have. I've, I've seen a few. Um, but that's that's really the risk of IP is like the deals are commonly structured in a way where the the bigger and the bigger the IP, the more the terms are going to be favorable and exactly. de-risking for the IP holder. I've generally seen. So you know what this might mean practically is is you might have to do some sort of guaranteed payout to use the IP that you're kind of on the hook for in spite of the success of the game. And so. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Ismail, if, if like when you're deciding whether to integrate an IP or if you have a game model and you're, you're you know, just trying to decide like, should we use an IP versus like, like develop our own IP? Do you try to kind of quantify like the increase of a top of funnel conversion value or, or how do you like, do you have any heuristics for sort of like mathing out when, when and how IP makes sense in the game model? Yeah, there's, there are different ways different people do it. Um, sometimes there are heuristics that people will apply to, okay, so how much do we think this IP is gonna lift, you know, our click-through rates and all this stuff. And I try to, you know, uh, follow the numbers right down to the product. We found, and sometimes you can actually do these experiments, right? Um, you, you put up the, the uh, fake landing pages, the fake app store pages and drive right. some traffic towards them and just see what, what can an IP do for a certain type of game? For us, we take a, we we do that. We do test um, some IPs before. Sometimes we even go out and try to get them, <laughs> just because to see like is this even worth wasting BD efforts on? That's smart. Uh, but sometimes, but sometimes it is. A, there is unfortunately a gut and product feeling that, that that's very subjective. <laughs> that you have to you know. It's based heavily on research. You know, it's not like you just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think this would make sense. It's like, okay, you've been making games for a while now. You've seen maybe a, comp a comparative game do something very similar with a certain audience. And you just know an IP really well and their demographic and you just feel like it would make sense. You've done the numbers, you've done the due diligence and it's just time to again, craft a product. And yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a risk that you do take but that's how we've gone about, about doing it. And it's, mostly panned out for us um yeah i mean so that, make, that makes that makes a ton of sense you never if you can never do anything innovative if you're not taking a little bit of risk what i mean by that is there's right. never data if you're doing something new there's not necessarily accurate one-to-one -one data on it and so you have to use exactly. a little bit of your intuition and so it totally makes sense um one so of the things i wanted a, to talk sorry go ahead one real quick point that i will say on that is and it's also why like so for us, we believe in both original IP and license IP. So we will continue to partner with licenses because we believe in the strength of them. But we think it's very important to also, you know, do risk our business by building new original IP. And that's where like the whole Web3 thing is very uh, interesting to us. But it's funny, if you look at the number of Batman games, Spider-Man games, Walking Dead games. There are so many. And the reason there are so many is like, nobody wants to take a risk. They're like, uh, you know what? I'm just gonna take the same IP that everybody else and their moms are using right. and just try to apply it over and over and over. Because at least like there's technically little brand risk or there's little uh, IP perception risk, but that, that can be problematic in that like, when somebody says, "Hey, I want to play the Walking Dead game," which which game are they talking about? Like, there's no it, differentiation it, in the yeah, consumer, right? <laughs> is it Scopely's? Is it this person's? Is it this person's? Like, it just gets like so confusing to the consumer, and they may yeah. be like, "Yeah, yeah." So, 
I, I'm laughing because because I, I at one point I was launching um, a Marvel IP game and we saw a huge byproduct of our marketing increasing the discoverability of all the other many Marvel exactly. games on the store. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, so Ismail, we we talked about a couple of big step changes. Um, you know, the the advent of free to play. Uh, the, um, the 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 appearance and adoption of major IP in mobile gaming. Um, you mentioned up top you're now very focused at the intersection of mobile and Web three. So is it safe to say like you that you see Web three technologies as the next major step change that the industry is adapting to? And kind of what do, what is your take on on that intersection? Yeah, I think it's. I, I've, I've always said the moment web, I started seeing some of these Web3 games come out and it felt like people were, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I come from the tech world too, right? Um, and I know what the, I know a lot about how tech thinks. It felt very much like tech found this um, space to try to approach and do it from a tech, pers tech first perspective and not understand it like, there's a beauty in the art of creating a game. And like, I tell people games are the hardest interdisciplinary product to yeah. make. Um, it, it's everything matters, art, animation, music, engineering, balance, the economy, like it all matters. Like you can't just build a game and like, you can't think of it like a lot of like Silicon Valley engineers do. And I'm, I'm technically one, so I can say that because I know how they think. Um, but I've had to learn and understand what it takes to build and craft a truly engaging game experience. So that said, we've always felt like fun first. Like uh, we have to create games that are fun. Um, and look, we'll figure out the NFT component later. And so for us, all of our games are all of the games that we're thinking about. We we call them like the Web 2.5 slash three, where some may be mm -hmm. NFT backed through and through. You need an, everything is represented by an NFT. You need an NFT to get in, blah, blah, blah. But some may just be uh, a game in which it's it's fun as heck. There's no NFT components to it, or it's very uh, abstracted away from the customer that they don't even know. And only the crypto native people that want to engage with maybe trading some of those assets, maybe we'll tell them how to go about like using those assets or getting yeah. access to them and trading them. But we feel like that's the future really. It's fun first, and you know, expose the NFT details to those that want it right. and those that, that care for it. it. It sounds like the the future you're describing is less that, uh, hey world, now it's Web3 gaming. It's more like, hey, we've got a new color on our palette of paints or a new tool, tool in our tool set. So now sometimes we're gonna really utilize this tool in one game model. It might just be like a little sauce on top in another game model, but it's not sort of the, the Web3 tech itself is is not the end game. It's just a means to the end of making more engaging and innovative games. Exactly, exactly. Because we think Web3 is the technology is what's most exciting. The speculation, all of that is like, 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 no. But the, the technology is, is exciting. Interoperability between like, um, you know, being able to tell pay players that they can take their assets and do what they want with it. Now, look, it's a whole different uh, probably podcast to talk about like the actual utility of taking, uh, I don't know, a game, an asset in one of my games and trying to find utility for it in a Scopely game that's like a totally different game. Like that's weird to me and doesn't fully make sense. But there's something to say like, hey, maybe there's an there's a there's a there's a rail that allows you to do that in a sense that like you can take the assets from my game, choose to liquidate it um, in some other way, shape, form, or stake it and get rewards from it, and use some of that to seamlessly participate in the Scopely game or in the whatever. And, or maybe like me and Scopely do do a business partnership or whatever, where like the NFTs do matter in both of our games. You can do such fascinating right. things with these, uh, with the technology, right? Um, and that's what we're excited about um, when it comes to Web3 um, and the metaverse, if you will. Yeah, I mean that that one that component is really interesting. I mean, you, do you have like these federations of game games and games companies where they actually have a coherent design document design theory about how they're going to have games assets interplay? I think they're it's right. people yell about it a lot, as in like it's impossible, it's never going to work. Everything you think it's, it's a terrible idea, but you know I'd be very surprised if in five years from now we don't see some really shiny examples of how that actually has worked pretty well. Okay, well we are getting close to time, is there anything else that you think is really critical to think about in terms of how games have developed over the last decade or so that you'd want to call out for our audience um, before we move on to our last section? 
but how games are developed. Um, not or the really market, dope. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Web3 generally is that it has come at a time where just marketing is very hard, um, traditional marketing, right? Which is partially why we're also really excited about it. Um, the deprecation of the IDFA was like really, really bad for a lot of people. Right. And if you come out today and say, hey, I'm just going to make another mobile gaming studio and try to pursue the traditional means of scaling that. It's like, well, good luck. Like, right. I see you right. at, I see you at the grave. I'll see you at your funeral. But, uh, <laughs> but if you're like, hey, I think there's, um, I don't know, there's this uh, Web3 component and this is how we're thinking about it. And it's novel and players like novel and um, PR likes novel. And uh, I think that's the future. And it also just Going back to an earlier discussion topic about from about being an OG is, you know, I talked about how my competitive advantage uh, when I first started was my like my ability to navigate the world, if you will, so seamlessly. Uh, now that's I will say it's becoming less, uh, but it's a good thing. I think uh, talent has always been um, globally available. It's just you know different cultures have always just been pitted against one another and made to think X, Y, and Z about one another. But now that the, the the walls are falling by both by choice and both by force, just because uh, the pandemic and all these things, you're increasingly seeing like super distributed uh, co uh, gaming companies, right? You're right. seeing companies with a lot of their development centers. Uh, what well, we used to look innovative, now we don't. Now we look like now we look like the only way you can actually create a studio today, uh, which is to have a development center in certain key markets. Maybe you have your marketing and your um, game design um, uh, folks in this other market, just because like you get to tap into existing pools um, that have existed from legacy companies that were in those areas. And that's how you build a successful uh, gaming company today. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the only thoughts I can think of to share as far as like the things to be thinking about um, as it relates to game development in today's market. Awesome. Well, that was a really, really insightful interview. I really appreciated all the insight you had and quite a, quite a bit of knowledge for us to tap into and our audience to tap into as well. Um, we're going to pivot to our last section, which is our app of the week. Uh, Warren, you have a pretty uh, spicy app this week. Do you want to take a, take a uh, start, start us off? Yeah, I got a weird one this week. Um, so I, I got, I was, I've overall I was a, a late adopter to crypto, but an early adopter to, to Web3 games. Gaming. And after being in the space for a few months, um, I decided one thing that I needed to do was learn how to ship and build a Web3 game because I'd never actually shipped a game before. So I, I didn't know if I would ever actually be talking about this project because I didn't know if it would make it this far. But I basically, with a team of like four friends um, that I met in a Web3 community, uh, we've been building this game called The Scrapyard for about nine months. Um, and this last week, we, we formally announced it. And uh, the reason why we did is uh, we, we want to take a different approach. So there's a lot of kind of vaporware, Web3 and NFT based games. And so we, we all agreed when we started building like, hey, we're not even going to like talk about this until you can we can actually play it and it's fun. And like when we won't even get, because who knows if we'll even make it that far. And we didn't want to just be like another vaporware Web3 product. So anyway, we finally are far enough along with development where we've been doing playtest sessions and uh, having a lot of fun with it. So we we unveiled the project uh, last week. So we'll link to the Twitter. What is Scrapyard? High level. It's a, like a arena car battling game, PvP car battling game. Um, and it's the the Web three components. There's a couple things to quickly touch on. One is like you you kind of design a loadout of you know different different ownable items and the, these are like the, the vehicle itself. There's a couple of weapon slots. There's a driver and passenger. And those are the different collectible aspects. And you build a unique loadout with different skills and you know weapon mixes. And then you compete in the arena based on that. Um, and one other area we wanted to experiment with was just like adding more like fun, meaningful interoperability. So uh, another hook that we have in the game is the ability to actually bring in NFTs from a bunch of supported communities. Like if you own a board ape, you can bring that in and actually use it as your driver. And uh, it will have unique abilities that only that that other outside collection can have. So this is an attempt to have some kind of like viral community building hooks and um, actually you know, everyone talks about interoperability from like, oh, you can take our asset into other games, but we don't see a lot of people actually saying like, oh, no, we've added value to your community assets. So for sure, it's 
yeah so it's 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 definitely just for fun and like a wild experiment but it's been a lot of fun like building with these guys it's like a high school teacher that's that's been doing much less of the coding like one and a half full-time devs basically but yeah so we'll link to the twitter uh we'll we'll be opening up the discord soon and probably some some open beta testing but uh that's that's my app this week xander do you have an app this week yeah my app this week is like pretty boomer and boring um but it's something that i still have have been using for years and years and years and really stand behind. So this uh, I'm calling out Audible by Amazon. Uh, Audible is, if you have been sleeping under a rock somewhere, is basically a e-reader, an audio book e-reader, um, which is tied to Amazon. And literally all it is is a marketplace where you can buy and listen to e-books, but I do quite a few, uh, or sorry, books of all kinds, audio books. Um, and I do quite a bit, bit of listening to audiobooks. And so for me, uh, I've been using it for a couple of years and I've run out of apps for the week. And so this week, I app of the week is Audible. Awesome. Yeah, I can I, I can second that. I've definitely transitioned to basically like the on, only audiobook mode of my life. Like that I it's been I think a decade since I've actually sat down and read a physical book, which is yeah, shameful. I've thought about that. It's like probably not good for your brain. Um but anyway. Not. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. as someone who does that like basically exclusively as well, I you know I'm not sure it's great. Awesome. Anyway, uh, um, yeah. I'd say my app of the week yeah. is probably AFK Arena. Um, nice. Oh, cool. It's it's an interesting game. It's not obviously not new. It's been around for a while. We started looking at it a while ago just because um, our company, you know, we focus on a wide uh, range of genres within mobile, uh, but the primary one has been narrative idle, um, puzzle, uh, puzzle specifically match three, and interactive stories, and. AFK Arena has been just a very powerful, it's been like, it's it's such a well done game. It's such a, it opened up our minds as to what could be done on mobile, um, if you will. And funny enough, it also became like an executive team bonding game where I shared it with the team just to kind of share some best practices and like, hey, look at how big this game is and what it does and maybe are there learnings that we can have. And a lot of people on the team just took to it and still play it. I mean, I think I shared it like two years ago and some change. And every time I, I log into it, I see a lot of our team has still like recently <laughs> logged in or they're sending me stuff and it's such an engaging product. So, um, yeah. yeah, so shout, shout out to them. Yeah. Um, AFK Arena, uh, so I, as a rule, really dislike idle games. I think they just sort of like, uh, as someone who's played a lot of, you know, games growing up, I just sort mm -hmm. of was in instantly repulsed by a game that played itself. Like, no, I need to play the game. Um, right. But AFK Arena, I downloaded, I don't know why, a couple, like a few months ago, a handful, maybe six months ago, and I played it a lot. And it's really, really good. Like, they've yeah. done a really, really, really good job. That There's still a lot of strategy, even though you're not actively playing it. And it's, you know, exactly. um, it, it, I think it's an example of idle games done really, really well. So I, I find that I enjoy idle games more and more, like, the older that I get and the busier that I get. Probably true. <laughs> <laughs> idle games are fun. So it's funny because uh, we've worked on a couple, uh, some of which I can't say, some of them do well. And we, I, before then, I never... I don't know that I ever would have even downloaded it. I would have said, what the, what is this? What is this? Like literally, this is not a game. Um, but as I started to study them and uh, build them and think through them, I was like, I've started to play a, a bunch of games, both for work and for fun. Yeah, um, I've, and I've played a lot of other idle games now too. So my uh, you know initial reaction definitely has been beaten out of me. Anyway, yeah. um, we're a little over time, so let's wrap this up. Isniel, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of really, really interesting insights. I think our audience will really, really appreciate it. I certainly personally really, really appreciated it. If someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Big Wolf Games, how can they do that? Yeah, so learn more about us. We're, we're revamping our website at the moment, but it's just bigwolf.com. And just my email is ismail at bigwolf. That's I-S-M-A-I-L at bigwolf.com. Um, I'm, relative, I'm relatively accessible. So yeah, I'd say that. And my Twitter is just twitter.com slash my last name, which is Myegan, M-A-I-Y-E-G-U-N. I'm, I'm not super active on there, but uh, I'm a consumer on Twitter. I'm not a producer. So <laughs> so I am on there. I check it all the time, but I don't tweet much. But yeah, I'd say those are the channels. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Warren, do you want to take us out? Yeah, absolutely. So as always, uh, this week's episode was brought to you by the team at Uptick. Here at Uptick, we make technology and provide the uh, people to help games and apps grow. Um, I think this week, one thing I want to just call attention to is uh, the the kind of increasing work that, that Xander and his team here at Uptick are doing on the content side. 
Um, we don't do much in the way of like advertising for our company, but we've been really trying to double down on just like making engaging content. So that's, you're going to be seeing a lot more from us as far as like long form articles, uh, webinars we're going to be doing, um, and, and obviously like ongoing work with, with the podcast. So uh, just shout out to, to check out uptick.com for some of the content there, um, especially if you're researching anything related to like uh, Web3 gaming, gaming economies, growth marketing. Um, we're trying to really provide some useful resources there. So you can find that at upptic.com. Awesome. Talk soon. Thank you.